0: Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is Ben Schaberman, Senior Director of Scientific Outreach at the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and very glad you could join us for another episode of the Eye on the Cure podcast. And I'm really looking forward to this particular podcast. Uh, Because this is for a technology that is um, truly cutting edge. At the foundation, we're often talking about some pretty cool and innovative technologies like gene therapies and stem cells and optogenetics. Well, this is really the epitome of cutting edge technology. And with us today are uh, Philip Troik, who is a Ph.D., and a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. And he's the executive director of the Pritzker Institute of Biomedical Science and Engineering and an affiliated professor in the Stewart School of Business at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And what he and his colleague, Dr. Lane, will be talking about, Frank Lane, is the intracortical Vision prosthesis. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Lane. He is a PhD and an associate professor and associate chair in the Department of Psychology at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And he joined IIT in 2006 as a faculty member and director of the Rehabilitation Engineering Technology Program. And I would say that Dr. Troik is really focused on the technology side of this um, intracortical vision prosthesis. And then Dr. Lane is really focused on the patient and the clinical side. And Dr. Lane has a long history of working collaboratively with the Chicago Lighthouse, where this trial will be taking place. And he and uh, Dr. Margaret Hike. Professor Emeritus, began conducting focus groups at the Lighthouse in 2008. And the purpose of those focus groups was to determine the perspectives of people who were blind about the restoration of what he calls visual percepts. So to get us started in talking about this, again, very cutting-edge device, the intracortical visual prosthesis Dr. Troik, will you tell us first what the visual cortex is, for those of us who don't know, and then what the prosthesis is?
0: Thank you, Ben, and it's it's great to be here, and um, I'm very happy to tell your listeners about this uh, project, which we've been working on for um, over 20 years. The vision cortex is the region of the brain that receives the input from the optic nerves, which of course receives it from the retina. So light comes into the eyes, stimulates the retina, the retina produces nerve impulses, they travel up the optic nerve, they stop off at place, and they eventually get to what we call the visual cortex. So if you put your hand in the back of your head, just above your neck, on both sides where you feel your skull kind of going to uh, bend down, that's where the vision cortex is. And you have one of those on each side. That's called the occipital lobe of the brain. So that's where all the input from the optic nerve ends up going, and that's where your brain figures out what it is that your retinas are are, uh, detecting from light that's coming in. So vision, of course, isn't a little TV tube in your head. Vision is your brain decoding all these neural signals and creating the perception of what the image is in, in your in your in your mind in your brain, <clears throat> and so um, something like the intracortical visual prosthesis is one of a number of vision prosthesis devices that attempts to technologically interface with the vision system at different levels. You could go to the retina, you could go to the optic nerve, we're going to the brain, so the idea is you make a technological connection to the visual part of the brain the occipital cord lobe which has the vision cortex and then you put electrical signals in which are controlled by a camera and <clears throat> the camera senses the visual the visual environment and through processing that we don't fully understand yet it converts the image information into electrical signals that we use to stimulate the vision cortex. And the idea is we stick this vision information directly into the brain, bypassing
1: the eyes and the optic nerve. Right. And I think that's a really important point for our listeners. Um, When we think about treatments, obviously, for retinal diseases, usually they're applied to the eye and the retina. Even the artificial retinas, the prostheses out there right now, mostly are um, going into the eye and are attached somewhere near or underneath the retina. This is bypassing the retina and the eye entirely, which, which is um, pretty amazing. And what is exactly or what will be going into the person's visual cortex? What, what's the hardware? So to make this interface
0: to the brain, uh, you're correct, we have to have a hardware system, a technological way to introduce these these, uh, signals into the brain. And that's done by putting very tiny miniature electrodes that go into the brain, and when small electric currents go into them, it then stimulates the neurons that are in the brain And then the brain starts reacting the way it would if it received signals from the optic nerve. So to do this, we have um, what's called the intracortical visual prosthesis system, or ICVP for short. And the system uses these tiny implantable modules that go onto the, the occipital lobe. These little modules are called wireless floating microelectrode arrays, and they're about the size of the button that you feel on the top of an AA battery. So they're very tiny, but each one contains 16 miniature electrodes that penetrate the brain. They penetrate the brain to about a depth of 10 thicknesses of paper, so somewhere around one to two millimeters. Each electrode has a very, very small tip. You could put 10 electrode tips on on the tip of a human hair. That's how tiny they are. Wow. And they come out from this little tiny disc that's about the size of the button on the AA battery. And in that little disc is electronics. And it's wireless electronics. So it can be powered and communicated with wirelessly. And... The way it works is kind of like a little cell phone network in your head. So each of these little modules, the wireless floating microelectrode array, or WFMA as we call it, it has an address like an area code of a telephone number. And each electrode in there has an address that's like a phone number. And so wirelessly from the outside of the head with no wires crossing the scalp or nothing mounted uh, directly into the head, like some systems have an electrical connector, this does not. Uh, we can power these and we can call up any electrode and tell it what to do. And so you could put about 40 of these over the surface of the occipital lobe. So you could get, you know, 600 to 700 electrodes that you could place there. And the idea is that by capturing the scene with the camera mounted on glasses, translating that scene into commands that tell the electrodes what to do, we hope to be able to create the perception of an image in the person's brain without the need to have eyes or optic nerves.
1: Wow, that, that's quite amazing. And you've been working on this technology for at least two decades, if I understood correctly
0: from... The, the roots of the project actually date back to the National Institutes of Health in the 1970s. But we uh, inherited the project starting in 2000. And uh, for, since then, we've been working to mature the technology to bring it to a point where it could be safely, surgically implanted in volunteers. And then we would be able to start understanding how we can talk to the brain. Because getting the devices in is step one. But then we got to figure out what to do with them. Right. And this right. is the exciting part because, you know, I'm an engineer and I feel pretty excited about developing the technology to put them in. But once they're in, now the visual psychophysicists have to take over and they have to work with the volunteer. And we have to figure out how we can communicate vision information to the brain. So it's a very pioneering project and um, we're very enthused, and the the whole team of of people from eight institutions is extremely dedicated.
1: Right, so eight institutions involved in the development of this device and the trial. So, Dr. Lane, let's talk about this trial, and I guess it's a very exciting time because all this work, over the decades, you're finally ready to start (laughs) evaluating this system in people. So, Dr. Lane, who would you say the best candidates for
2: the trial would be? That's a great question, and it's one that we've been working, as you say, over 10 years trying to answer just that question of um, who is a good trial candidate. And when you mentioned about the work that I did with Dr. Margaret Hike, we started, or my portion of this started in two thousand and eight when um, Dr. Troik and I were um, working on dissimilar projects, um, but both uh, working with people who are blind and he told me about this project and said that one of the questions that he had is why would someone participate in having a neural implant uh, implanted and so um We said we don't know the answer to that question, but we'd certainly like to. And so what we did was conduct a series of focus groups um, at the Chicago Lighthouse, and which then went from there beyond um, into um, speaking with participants and individuals from other clinical trials to um, understand their experiences and what we found uh, in our searching for um, the answer of why would someone participate is that most individuals have a desire to participate in a trial like this for some sort of visual restoration. In other words, some individuals have very realistic, but others have unrealistic expectation that clearly everyone is wanting to restore vision. But what we didn't anticipate we would find is that individuals have an altruistic motive and that they would like to um, participate in groundbreaking research because um, it could help a family member, other individuals who are blind, or vision science um, as a whole. And so what we discovered was that these motivations, if you will, Transcended not only focus groups but also studies that we spoke to individuals in eight different countries who had participated in a visioned clinical trial. So the first thing that we've discovered is that someone who's really interested in looking at this uh, motivation as, as altruism uh, to try and help vision science. As far as other candidates, I'd like to just go down um and talk about some of the inclusion criteria that we have for the project that really sort of identify um, who those individuals are. Individuals should be 18 to 70 years of age and have no light perception. And that means the individual can have no light perception. if they can see a hand motion in their visual visual field, the individual would be considered um, unqualified for that. They have to have a history of near normal vision, at least to the age of 10. And The reason for that is because the belief is that it takes that length of time for the visual cortex to sufficiently develop to be able to respond to the, uh, to the implant itself. It's also important that the individuals we work with are adjusted to blindness. Um, And that part of that adjustment to blindness and evidence of that is history of engaging in blindness rehabilitation, like wet game training, independent living skills training, things of that nature. And we also found that it's important for participants to have a really strong support system. And that support system varies from individual to individual, but friends, family members, uh, participants um, uh, in their health care, such as physicians, clergy, all of these um, individuals um, um, make up a support system that um, we feel is, is important for, um, for good participation in the trial. And
1: just to clarify, this trial will be taking place in the Chicago area?
2: Yes, it will. And you're recruiting how many people? Recruiting, recruiting a total of five individuals. Five
1: people, okay, in the Chicago area. And I want to get back to a word that Dr. Troy used because I think it's really important to emphasize, and that's the pioneering aspect of this this trial. I know when when people in our world of retinal diseases go into a trial. Um, they're hoping to have some meaningful vision restored, and there's a certain expectation, perhaps, um, if the treatment works, what people might see. But in this trial, if I understand correctly, things are a little different, and maybe you can elaborate on this, Dr. Troik or Dr. Lane, or both of you. Sure, I'll jump in and
0: let, let Frank give his thoughts, too. So, um, yes, indeed, it is experimental. And it's experimental because, frankly, nobody knows exactly how to talk to the brain artificially, and nobody knows exactly how to convert information from a camera to be meaningful when it's perceived by the person. And so in that respect, it is, as, as we like to think of it, almost as pioneering as astronauts going to a place where um, humans hadn't been. And so the participants in our project, and we like to call them participants, not patients, because they really are members of our research team. They'll have to be because they will tell us what's happening when we try to do this artificial stimulation. But we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't think there was a likelihood of some benefit. And what we've also found and others have found is that for someone who has no light perception at all, uh, an even minimal amount of vision information can be very helpful to tell the difference between day and night, to be able to see things moving in their vision field. One individual that Dr. Lane interviewed who had an earlier system, From a different group, had nine spots of light. Because when you stimulate, you get these spots of light that are called phosphenes. And with these nine spots of light, he was able to see the edge of the curb and he was able to navigate more easily to a job that was further away from his house than he ordinarily could have. That was a meaningful perception for him. He didn't see his child's face, but he had artificial vision in a way that improved his quality of life. So we don't know where the system will lead us, and we don't know what these experiences of these five people will define for the next generation of devices. And that's really why our enthusiasm is so high, and we're looking for people who have similar enthusiasm and want to contribute to knowledge and want to help the field advance so that one day such devices will become routine care.
1: Right, so really the candidates for this trial have to be really more interested in helping you, the researcher, than perhaps gaining significant visual benefit, because you're helping the, they're helping you understand what's working, maybe what needs adjustment, and what the potential um, vision restoration might be. And of course,
0: we all have hope. We have hope of the aha moment. Right. When we do discover something that then allows even the limited technology that we have to be more useful to the
1: person than we might have even anticipated. Right, Doctor Lane. I don't know if you have anything more to add, but one question I definitely have is: tell us who would not be a good candidate for this trial.
2: Certainly, someone who has um, recently lost their vision, uh, say within the last year, and someone who's not hasn't had sufficient time to adjust to being blind. That's uh, in our research. We've found that. Individuals who aren't well adjusted tend to um, have unrealistic expectations of what the device can do. Um, and when that expectation isn't met, um, there's disappointment and often negative emotions that are, that are um, associated with that. Um, certainly in someone who, for whatever reason, um, there's something interfering with their de- decision-making capacity Um, individuals who have a history of seizures. There are also some other uh, health-related conditions that would make someone not a good trial candidate. Um, But I would say that those are the primary ones.
1: Right. And I'm sure this doesn't show up in the clinical trials inclusion or exclusion criteria, but I think somebody has to be pretty courageous to get involved um and and go through the surgery and and move forward from there courageous is a good word and dedicated is also
0: a good word because um it will require time commitment you know we will have to be working with the recipients of the of our system uh over an extended period of time the whole trial runs for 3 years and the five people will be implanted at different times in the trial, so the very first person will have uh, three years of experience with us, and so um, it does. It will require dedication and uh, and patience, and um, so so yes, we're not looking for superhuman people in that respect. But um, I think something, and maybe Frank can comment on it, that another thing his work brought out is that um, uh, individuals who are interested in this also have a strong sense of adventurism. They'd like to do something somebody else hasn't done before. And ironically, to do that, the person has to be visually impaired. The FDA has approved us to implant this in individuals with blindness, but they haven't approved it for implantation people who have have near normal vision and so we actually need individuals who have the ability, not disability, the ability to tell us because they are visually impaired how we can do this interface to the brain. So, um, you know, if, if my enthusiasm is coming out in this, it, it's because we're adventurous too and we're very enthused about seeing where this can take us and the field. Exactly.
2: And that really is the, the little that's been written about motivation to engage in pioneering research is that um, scientists, principal investigators, we're all um, uh, motivated by this pioneering kinds of research. And so why is it that the participants in our study couldn't be equally as excited as we are and participate in the clinical trial at a similar level in terms of role.
1: Right. So Dr. Lane, can you tell our listeners if they're feeling adventurous and pioneering how to reach out to you uh, to inquire about the trial?
2: Oh, of course. So um, there are a number of different ways that um, individuals can reach out to us. One is by email. Which um, our email address is ICVP for intracortical visual prosthesis at IIT.edu. That's ICVP at IIT.edu. Individuals can also call us at area code 312 567 5304. You can also see um, the proposal itself on clinicaltrials.gov. And if you'd like to see the main homepage for the the clinical trial, it's chicagolighthouse.org forward slash icbp. And at that particular site, there are audio files of prior educational sessions that individuals who would like to learn more about the device can hear and also, questions that other attendees at those sessions asked um, and the responses to those. So um, a lot of very thorough information on the website, um, certainly um, for someone who's interested in learning more and certainly direct contact with us um, if you have specific questions.
1: That's great. Thanks for all that uh, contact information. And I'll remind our viewers if you have questions about this podcast or any podcast, you can always send uh, an email to podcast at fightingblindness.org. It's probably better if you have questions about the prosthesis to email um, or or contact Dr. Lane's group through the information he gave you, but feel free to reach out through the email address podcast at fightingblindness.org. As well, so one uh, question I had to kind of um wind things down here is I suspect when you're a kid, even in school, you don't think about being involved in projects like this. How did you both get involved what What inspired you or what led you to um getting involved in the
2: intracortical visual prosthesis. Go ahead, Frank. So mine really goes back to um, going to graduate school. I chose a PhD program that um, uh, worked with candidates on learning how to do cross-disciplinary research. And so I came out of school looking for individuals from other disciplines to do work with. And IIT, as an engineering school, turned out to be a a really good place for me and my interest in technology. And because I feel strongly that participants, people who are blind, should have a strong voice um, in the research that we conduct, my very early conversations with Dr. Troy, that resonated for him. Um, And so that was really my entrance into this project. Um and real what really has been um some pioneering work that I didn't anticipate on my end, but is certainly the kind of thing that gets me out of bed in the morning.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Troik.
0: Well, it's funny because you made mention of when you're a kid you don't think about working on something like this. And um I guess I was uh I was from the group that they called nerds, right? (laughs) Uh, But I can tell you that um, from as long back as I can remember, um, electronics fascinated me. And there was never any doubt what career I wanted to have. I didn't have to go through a discovery process in grade school, high school, or even at the university. Um, I just knew I wanted to do electronics and probably the bifurcation point was when I began to understand that uh, our bodies work primarily by electric signals that control every function of the body. And I began to think, why can't electronics be married with the body? And from that point on, um, my career trajectory was just deeper and deeper into how to interface electronics with the body so it just to me it just seemed like a natural extension of everything i had always thought about and so um so it's it's really a labor of love because
1: it's it's not a career it's just what i do right so when you were a kid did you hang out in radio shack quite a bit um Well, actually, when I was a kid, uh,
0: Radio Shack was called Allied Radio, and they used to send uh, catalogs in which they had kits called night kits. So there was night kits and heath kits. And uh, you'd look through those catalogs like a Christmas wish list, thinking what you could get. And so, um, but yes, actually, uh, it's funnier than that. My friends in the neighborhood and I, who were similarly interested, we used to scrounge along the railroad tracks near the house for uh, old TVs that people used to throw, and we'd cut all the parts out of them and then use them for other projects. So uh, when I said it started young, I, I was a nerd when I was a kid, and I guess I still am.
1: Well, those are great stories, and we're grateful for your nerdiness. <laughs> we need that to, to move uh, these technologies forward, so thank you. Uh, Dr. Lane, Dr. Troik, thanks for a really fascinating discussion about this emerging device and your clinical trial. Again, uh, they are recruiting. You can send an email to ICVP at iit.edu if you're interested in learning more about the trial from these gentlemen, or you can call 312. Five six seven, five three zero four, and thank you again, gentlemen, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Eye on the Cure, and hurry back for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having us, Ben. Thank you. This has been Eye on the Cure.
0: To help us win the fight, please donate at FoundationFightingBlindness.org.